0: this morning, and you will create a resolution for your life, for where you're at. If you've been a Christian your whole life, if you're not a Christian, if you're checking Christianity out, if you're brand new in the faith, I hope you will take something from this morning, and you will say, I'm going to try to do that once a week, or I'm going to try to do that retreat at the end of February, or I'm going to be a part of Walk Through the Bible Old Testament in February, or I'm going to do something to help me grow in my faith. We have the opportunity the next two months to journey through what I think is one of the most important books in the entire Bible. It's the book of 1 Peter. And if you don't have your Bible, grab your pew Bible in front of you. You can find 1 Peter 1 on page 1200. It's very easy to find in your pew Bible. 1 Peter is a great book for several reasons. I love 1 Peter because of who wrote 1 Peter. Peter, of course, is the author of 1 Peter, and Peter was part of Jesus' inner triangle. Jesus had 12 disciples that spent three years with him, but three of them were part of this inner circle, this inner triangle, Peter, James, and John. And this is Peter that's written this, this epistle. Now, to give you a time perspective, we estimate that Jesus was born probably in 4 B.C., that he died on the cross and rose again about 30 A.D., and this book is written mid-60s A.D., So we're talking 30, 35 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And during that time, Peter grew up. See, the Peter that we read about in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he was immature. He had some real highs. He had some real lows. He said, Jesus, I will never forsake you. And then he denied him three times. He walked on water, and then he started to worry, and he sank. Peter has grown up by the time this epistle is written. And the context for this book I think is interesting. What is happening mid-60s A.D. is a shift is taking place with the Romans. The Romans rule the world. And for the first couple decades following the resurrection of Jesus and the beginning of Christianity, men like Peter, but especially Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Apollos, they go out on these missionary journeys, and they do face obstacles along the way. There is persecution along the way, but there is this huge groundswell of support that's beginning to develop for Christianity. And churches are popping up in different places, and people are on fire for Jesus, and the Romans, for the most part, are indifferent. Now, you can go to the book of Acts, and you can point to the time that, you know, Paul got beat up by this soldier, and they faced this persecution here, and that would be correct. But for the most part, the Romans ignored the rise of Christianity until the early 60s. These are the days uh, of Nero. Nero isn't quite emperor in 60 AD. He's about to become emperor, and there is an incredible persecution that is about to take place of God's people. And because of that, many people that have become very excited about following after Jesus, they're a part of maybe a house church or they're a part of a church in a place like Antioch or Corinth or Philippi or someplace else. Because of this persecution, there's this scattering that has begun to take place. And people that at one time were comfortable in their town, they've moved to another town to try to avoid this persecution. Peter is writing this letter. We we call it an epistle. Late in his life, history tells us that he will die a death by crucifixion about five years after this book is written. And he has seen incredible things in his lifetime. He he has walked with Jesus for three years. But now he sees this incredible persecution, these harsh trials rising up, and many people wondering Is it worth it? Is Christianity worth it? Is being a Christ follower worth it? And so his big idea for the whole book of 1 Peter is simply this. He's challenging first century Christ followers to stand firm in the midst of suffering and to live holy lives. For the next eight weeks, I'm going to try to give you a tag phrase to take with you that helps you understand what Peter's trying to communicate what Peter is trying to drive home. But the overall theme is that stand firm. Don't be discouraged. Stay true to the faith. It will make all the difference in the world. Let's read together. We're just going to look at the first seven verses of 1 Peter 1 today. I've got a couple of ideas I want to leave you with, and each week we'll look at a different theme in the book. 1 Peter 1, beginning with verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Verses one and two. It's basically a big introduction. It's basically saying you are special people, you are God's people, and I send greetings to you. And in verse 3, he really gets to the point. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ... Is revealed the word of the Lord, First Peter one the first seven verses, and what I want to do this morning is I want to give you four takeaways, four truths that hopefully you will take with you today that help you understand why Peter is writing this. It will help you understand the greatness of Christianity, the greatness of the faith. It'll help you understand why you want to wake up every single day of your life saying praise God. For Jesus Christ the Son. Praise God for Jesus Christ, my Lord. Praise God for Jesus Christ, my Savior. Four truths. And truth number one is this: it's in the first verse. It's kind of just a throw-in, but it's a truth we need to grab a hold of. This world is not your home if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. This world is not your home. It says it right there in verse one that we as Christians are strangers in this world. Verse two says that we are God's elect that we have been chosen. And I am afraid, as I look at my life, and maybe you've done the same inventory with your life, if we're not careful, we can fall in love with this world to the point that it's unhealthy for our spiritual life. I've got to tell you, there's a lot of parts of this world that I absolutely love. I don't know that anything is better than when I am fishing in northern Wisconsin, and I tie into about a five. Pound smallmouth, and I fight that sucker for 10 minutes, and I actually get it in the boat, and I hold that up. That, that's about as good as life gets. I love when I watch my favorite baseball team, the Chicago Cubs, finally win the World Series. Oh, wait a minute, that hasn't happened yet. Ho- hopefully, that will happen at some point. I love when you go to a new restaurant, and, and, and the steak they bring you is more delicious than you could ever have imagined. I love the things of this world, but I have to be reminded. And you have to be reminded that as Christ followers, as good as this world can be, this world is not our home. And I guess I have a question. Have Christians in 2014 become infatuated with this world, with the things of this world, with the stuff of this world? Do we have this idea in our mind that this is as good as it gets? Peter is writing to persecuted Christians and saying, hang in there. Don't give up. This world is not your home. I share with you this morning, if you're going through a tough time, that same message. Hang in there. Don't give up. This world is not your home. But maybe you came here today and life's better than it's ever been. You're making more money than you've ever made. Your family's unfolding exactly like you hoped it would. Uh, Everything in your life is great. Don't forget, this world is not your home. Truth number one. This world is not your home. Truth number two to grab a hold of this morning is this. God the Father has given his followers a new birth. He's given his followers a new birth. Look at verse 3. It says, our God has given us new birth. And friends, this morning, I love what sets up verse 3. Peter reminds us that our God is a God of great mercy, A God of great mercy. I've had the opportunity this last year to spend several hours at the DeWitt County Jail doing Bible study with men and women, most of whom I did not know at all. I'd never seen before. Many of them I may never see again. And a prayer that I have been asked to pray on multiple occasions with prisoners is, will you pray that the judge will have mercy? Well, you pray for mercy, and with passion and sometimes with tears, we've prayed that that he would have mercy on, on this prisoner, and sometimes there's been mercy shown, and sometimes maybe there hasn't been. I share that with you this morning because all of us, spiritually speaking, are prisoners. We've fallen short of God's glory. We're not who we should be. But our God is full of great mercy. And because of that, he's given us new birth. He's given you new birth. He's given me new birth. It doesn't matter what's in the past. It doesn't matter what's unfolded in years before or months before or weeks before or yesterday. Our God is a God of great mercy. Don't forget that. Don't lose sight of that. Do you remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus late at night in John chapter 3? Nicodemus was a religious leader of his day. He had a lot to lose. Jesus was considered a quack. Jesus was considered a false teacher. They would eventually convict him of blasphemy, but Nicodemus knew there was something with Jesus. And he went to Jesus late at night and he said, Jesus, I I don't know it all. I can't figure it all out. But what do I need to do? And Jesus said, you must be born again. New birth. Jesus told Nicodemus about the new birth. Peter reminds first century Christ followers about the new birth. And I'm telling you today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the incredible gift of new birth. You should rejoice in that. You should be excited. You should revel in the new birth that Jesus Christ has provided. Truth number three. 1 Peter 1 shows us that because we have this new birth, incredible blessings have been provided for followers of Jesus Christ. This new birth provides incredible blessings for Christians. Right now, everybody, please, I want you to take something to write with, and I want you to grab your bulletin or your sermon outline or the attendance card that's in front of you, and I want you to write down three blessings in your life right now. Go. And you don't have to do the Sunday school answers. You don't have to do God, Jesus, and church. You don't have to do that. Just three blessings in your life. Go. It's at Thanksgiving every year that we sing that song during our first service. Count your blessings, name them one by one. And yet we shouldn't just count our blessings the Sunday before Thanksgiving or the Sunday after Thanksgiving. We probably ought to do this exercise every Sunday. You probably ought to do this exercise every day. Think about the great blessings you have in your life. Right here in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter shares with his readers three blessings that we have because of the new birth we have through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. And blessing number one is this, we have a living hope. It's a living hope. Verse 3 says, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you were to grab your Bible and you were to journey all the way through the Old Testament, and you spent time reading, say, in the book of Joshua and and the conquest, and then the judges and the ups and the downs, and then you got into the Samuels and the kings and the chronicles, and you saw Israel's ups and downs, and there were more downs than there were ups, but it was kind of a roller coaster. Through it all, there was kind of a singular cry. There was kind of a singular plea from God's people to God the Father. Give us hope. Help us realize hope. Make hope a reality. And sometimes great judges rose up and they thought, well, that's our hope being realized. And it usually didn't pan out. And sometimes Israel would have a great king and they'd think, this is our hope. With David, they thought, he is the one. And then it didn't pan out like that. And then it got really ugly for a while. The Assyrians overran the northern kingdom, and the Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem was a mess, and they were in exile, and then Jesus came into the equation. And Peter tells us right here in chapter 1, verse 3, that this isn't just a pie-in-the-sky kind of hope. This isn't just, I hope I make more money this year. I hope my favorite sports team wins a championship. I hope my kids get it all together. I hope I get straight A's. I hope I get a scholarship. I hope I get into the college that I want to get into. This is a realized hope. This is a living hope. When Jesus rose from the dead, hope became reality. And because of that, Peter says rejoice. Peter says blessing number two is a forever inheritance. It's a forever inheritance. In verse 4, he says, you have, you're have you being blessed by an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in in heaven for you. I had a great aunt by the name of Aunt Ruby. Aunt Ruby, man, she was a jewel. Never had kids of her own. Loved to spoil her nieces and nephews and great nieces and great nephews. And I was in the great nephew category. And when she died in 2000 at the age of 97, the best way we could probably describe her, and some of you will be offended by this term, but this is the real. She was a pack rat. I mean, she had this huge house, and it just had a ton of stuff, and I still remember my dad and my Aunt Abby saying, we're going to tackle this project together, and I just came home with all kinds of stuff, and my wife would look at me like, what are we going to do with that stuff? And I'm like, it's Aunt Ruby's. It's my inheritance. I've got to bring it with me. Containers of Tang. You know, do we drink Tang anymore? I mean, all kinds of stuff. But here's the point that I want to drive home. Not a single thing that I inherited from that inheritance is still with me that I know, that I'm aware of. Marla might tell you otherwise, but I don't think any of it is still around. Because after a while, the stuff, it fades. It spoils. Maybe you get water in the basement. It gets ruined. You throw it away. Stuff is just stuff. And Peter says you're receiving an inheritance. It will never perish It'll never spoil. It'll never fade. It's kept in heaven for you. Listen to me for just a moment, especially if you're in a valley of life, a storm of life. We've got several in our church right now just facing unsure times medically, unsure times vocationally. Maybe you're a student. You're not sure what you're doing with your life. Understand this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if Jesus is Lord of your life, No matter how bad it gets in 2014, it's okay because the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. This world is not your home. Peter is reminding people who have watched family members die because of their faith. Peter is reminding people that have had to move from their lifelong homes because of their faith. It will be okay because there's an inheritance waiting for you. It will never perish. It will never spoil. It will never fade. Blessing number three, a faith-driven shield. By the power of God. Verse 5 says, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. I think this verse is misunderstood. I think this concept is misunderstood. I think for many years, well intended preachers and teachers miscommunicated what this shield is all about. This is not some sort of a force field where I walk through life and I can't ever face crises, I can't ever get sick. I can't ever have consequences from my own bad behavior. That's not what this is about. This is about a God and Father in heaven that whatever you endure will bless you and sustain you and keep you and help you. Will there be consequences? There may be consequences. If you go out and do something really crazy today, you will face consequences for that. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Peter says you're protected by a shield. I had this illustrated for me when I was a kid, and I didn't even realize it at a time. I think I was 11 or 12. I was on a youth baseball team coached by my dad. And back in those days, we weren't so worried about safety. So my dad had a big orange pickup truck, and all 10 of us would ride in the back of the big orange pickup truck, sometimes on the interstate. I mean, it's just crazy, you know, the things that we did back in those days. And one night after a baseball game on the far side of Urbana. We were coming back to Champagne, and we always had a huge cooler full of Shasta soda. We never got the good stuff. We never got the Coke or the Pepsi, but baby, we had a lot of Shasta in those days, and the Shasta was all gone on that night, but the garbage sack with the ice water was still in the cooler, and I remember one of my teammates, Scott, looked over and said, I wonder what would happen if we launched that bag of ice water onto an oncoming car. What would happen? And we all kind of thought this would be a neat experiment, you know, kind of summertime, but kind of school, you know, an experiment. And so I was the one that was elected to take that big bag of ice water and launch it toward an oncoming car. But I couldn't see the car coming. It turned out that it was a BMW convertible driven by a guy that looked like he'd come off the pages of GQ magazine. And it didn't hit the hood. It didn't hit the windshield. It hit him and the inside of his car. And to say he was angry would be an understatement. To share what he shared after that instance would just be wrong because we are in a sanctuary, and you're not supposed to use words like that. He was ready to fight. I was 12. He didn't care. He was ready to fight. And everything changed when my 6-foot, 8-inch father got out of that truck and entered into the discussion. And he heard the story. And he looked at me and he said, I'll deal with you later. And he did deal with me later. That is true. But he said to the guy, get in your car and drive away. And an amazing thing happened. The guy got in his car and he drove away. And I was shielded that day by a father much larger than me, much wiser than me. And while I still had consequences, though, there were definitely consequences, I was protected. We have a God and Father that's much wiser than we are. We think we're pretty smart sometimes. We have a God and Father that is omnipotent, omniscient. And he is there to guide you and shield you and help you no matter the circumstance. Truth number four, we're almost done. Truth number four is this. Suffering is a reality of the Christian faith. I'm not going to get into this because we're going to have an entire message at the end of February on suffering. Sixteen times. In the five chapters of 1 Peter, we see this word suffering brought up. But I would be remiss if I didn't at least share what our text has to say. Verses 6 and 7 say, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And in it, there's two truths about suffering. And truth number one is this. Suffering can help you, as a Christ follower, prove your faith. Now, that may sound crazy to you. What do you mean, prove my faith? It's easy to be on fire for Jesus when everything is great, when life's exactly like you want it to be. I'll tell you, I, I could name names this morning of people in my life I grew up with that have walked away from the faith or have really distanced themselves from their relationship with other Christ followers because the storms of life came their way. They, they proved that maybe their faith wasn't what we thought that it was. And so the temptation sometimes is to say, God, I am mad at you. I am frustrated with you. I'm going to punish you. And Peter says here, when the storms of life come, you can prove the genuineness of your faith by how you react. Second truth about suffering, suffering brings praise, glory, and honor to God the Father. I, I love reading about the Christian martyrs of yesterday. And the testimony that so many of them had in the midst of suffering. And they are words of worship about the greatness of God. About the greatness of God. Suffering brings praise, glory, and honor to God the Father. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is this. I hope that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you will embrace and live out the living hope we have in Jesus. No matter the circumstance no matter the situation. And I would throw this out. If you're not a Christian, you know, I, I hope that you would take these next two months and you just make it a priority to be here. Let's journey through 1 Peter together. Let's look at what a, what one of Jesus' best friends has to say about the faith. And you can make a decision. Is Christianity right for me? Do I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ or not? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for the opportunity to journey through this book that was written so many years ago, a couple thousand years ago, but it's so relevant.